This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. So has anyone calmed down yet? The potential for this season still is incredible. The League Cup is in the bag, the Premier League is three points away and now Manchester City are in their first Champions League final. We're celebrating that on this week's Blue Moon podcast but we're also taking a look at where City have come from as this week marks 20 years since the club was last relegated. Chelsea are on the horizon this weekend, could that be the game where the title is secured? Plus we'll also take a look at a pair of the strangest red cards City have ever seen. Why? Well, why not? I'm David Mooney. With me this week is City fan Richard Burns. Hello. And football commentator Connor McNamara. Hi there, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks Connor. Uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's start with uh, that Champions League, uh, the fact that City are in the Champions League final. Uh, Connor, we'll come to you in a minute because uh, I've got to get the fans' reaction first. Richard, um, so what, what's it like? City have made their first Champions League final. It's been a decade in the making. It's very, very surreal, isn't it? Um, and it's, I mean, it's obviously absolutely fantastic. It, it's incredibly exciting. It's nerve wracking. Um, but it's, it's, I think surreal is the main thing I will go with it. And um, I think what, one of the reasons that this is really, really surreal is that like, excluding things like if we're in the Europa League at some point, in, uh, again, in, in future seasons or things like the World Club Cup or Super Cup. In terms of like major trophies and the ones that you pursue and really want to win, this is the last of the sort of uncharted territory for City. Um, we have now, there will never now be another first time of getting to a Champions League final. We've had our first league title and it, it feels a bit like going into the final game against QPR. It feels like going to... Uh, it felt like going into the cups, the FA Cup semi-final against United in 2011. It just brings back a lot of those feelings that we've not had for a while because we've had so much success over the last 10 years that treading this uncharted territory into a Champions League final, um, it's just so nice. It, it almost takes me back 10 years of having those similar feelings for uh, for winning our first FA Cup of my life and first Premier League title uh, the, of the Premier League era and obviously first league title of my life anyway. It's just, it's just great. It's absolutely great. I'm so happy with it, obviously. Yeah. Any, any regrets that you've not been able to get there to see any of it? Oh, completely. I mean... I don't mean to be pedantic. Regrets isn't the word I'd attach because it's out of my control. Um, but definitely, um, I'd, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a tinge of, um, again, sadness probably isn't the right word either. But um, yeah, just a, a slightly downbeat fi- uh, feeling after the second goal of, uh, obviously it was mostly elation, but I was, um, when that goal went in, my wife was... Um, I think she was putting our baby son back to sleep. He'd woken up, not because of me cheering, I must say. <laughs> um, so I sort of, where I'd normally be with my dad and obviously with thousands of other people, that was the only noise was me in my front room on my own. And so that wasn't, um, you know, it's not how you want to celebrate that moment, ideally, is it, um, when, you, when you're used to being at the games. But... Um, so I'd, I'd be lying if I said that that didn't make me a little bit, I don't know, maybe almost melancholic for, for a couple of minutes is the word of thinking what it would have been like and what the noise would have been like. And that, that we all know that massive relief that you get when a, when a big goal goes in. Um, but it's, it's out of our control, so I'll, I'll enjoy it for, for what it is. And yeah. um, I, I hope to have similar feelings after the final. I know that it, I won't be there. I'm not going to Istanbul, unfortunately. 
but I'll be very happy to celebrate it. And at least I'll be watching this one with my parents. Yeah. Uh, Connor, what, what was it like as a, a, from uh, an outside perspective to, to, to witness that, especially when that second goal went in against PSG? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware of the, the enormity of it. I, I went to college in Manchester back in the day uh, and, I, you know, back in what would have been very doldrum days for Manchester City. I remember my first year in college was when City got relegated under Alan Ball. Um, and my f- uh, flatmate, Nick, used to, himself and his dad had, had season tickets at Main Road and his dad's job moved to Bristol, I think it was at the time. And he ended up, have, uh, you know, quite regularly having a spare ticket uh, to go to a game. And, and, you know, having come from Ireland and been over in Manchester, that was the first time I had sort of reg- I mean, I'd been to games before, but it was the first time I would sort of regularly uh, seen the team. And I didn't go that much, you know, just a handful of games. But, um, but you know, so I'm very aware of, of, of where the club has come from. And what it's been through and and that makes it absolutely all the more special for me i think i think this particular team um the the beauty of it if you want is that you know city don't rely on any one superstar and i even think you know in a funny way with aguero being a peripheral figure at the moment and i know he's come back and he scored recently and whatnot but you know even him who's who's probably the biggest name at the club and has been in recent years not involved this is not a team of superstars i think it was so ironic to see paris saint germain who who clearly are a team built around superstars and, and neymar did his best over the two legs mbappe being injured for the second leg was huge and and you take that away and and, and the castle crumbled for Paris Saint-Germain. But what I think with City is they've moved on to a whole new level now where it's not about, oh, you know, Rubinho or King Cladzi or, you know what I mean? It's not about the <laughs> one guy who's going to suddenly, you know, catch lightning in a jar and City are going to win a game because of one guy's brilliance. It's not. It's, it's so much more composed and controlled now. And they are a team in that definition of a team. And, and, and I, I genuinely believe this at the moment. You take any of them out now. You know, you play a game without Foden. You play a game without De Bruyne. You play a game w- without Mares. It doesn't matter. The team are, are strong enough now as a squad. Now, obviously, you, you know, you take three or four of them out. That's a different story. But, but where City have reached now is a stage where they don't rely on any one individual. And I just think that's that's very significant that, 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 that this it finally comes together. They finally get to a, a Champions League final when they get a team and not just the, the reliance on, on one or two individuals. And Richard, I mean, just looking at uh, at the performance against PSG, um, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to roll it into the performance against Dortmund as well, because it, it feels like four very grown-up performances there from City that, that we've not really been used to in the Champions League, especially. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it absolutely was that. Um, I think when you look at, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, so I hope I'm not sort of... Uh, stealing any of your questions from under you but I think really when we think of grown-up performance or mature or or what those four games or two ties had in common um so I I sense the undertone of of your question is probably about how well City defended in those games because that's that was what was key to the success and it's not always been the case with City we know that um for for a long, long time. I mean, to be fair, for the vast majority of the last 10 years, even pre-Pep, City's attack has rarely been a big problem because there's always been a wealth of attacking talent there. Um, of course, there are games when they miss chances and they, um, they're very wasteful, but that can happen to anybody. But ultimately, you can usually bank on City to score. What it requires is a maturity of defending. That doesn't just mean the defenders. It also means, um, it means those players in midfield working back and doing the bit. 
And that isn't what we've always had. Um, and I, I don't mean that through sort of any lack of effort from previous teams or previous iterations of this team. It's just not always been an obvious quality. Yeah. Um, but in the PSG game in particular, and it was evident against Dortmund, that's why Haaland only had one major chance over 180 minutes. Um, and then Edison made a good save. You obviously roll Edison into the quality of that defence. Um, against PSG, it was there were times where it was almost emergency defending, like the, the Zinchenko block that they were all hugging after. Um, it was bodies on the line. And it was more than that. It was... It was um, a, a good defensive line. It was a, a team in harmony and, and knowing what they were doing together. But in key moments, individuals put themselves on the line. And that is at this level it is what you have to do. Um, and it was, it was fantastic to see. And so um, hopefully I've interpreted your question, right. But I, I, to me, <laughs> when we talk of mature, it is the whole, that that's the whole collective, isn't it? And, and and then it's seeing a game out as well. I suppose like it was, we were willing to cede possession for one of the first times I can remember under Pep, because we knew that PSG having the ball wasn't dangerous because we could defend properly and we could we could let them have it deep and not necessarily. It's not that we weren't pressing, but it was almost at times it was territorial rather than just necessarily to steal the ball back because the game was, the game was sewn up and we could afford to do that. So they're the things that I take by mature. If that's not what you meant, then, um, then maybe Connor will have a, a well, better stab at it. But that I, I agree with you, essentially. Well, I was actually, Connor, going to talk about uh, the way that City controlled the ties rather than uh, the actual the way they defended. Because, uh, like Richard said, they uh, that there was, uh, as much as uh, of the ball as PSG had, there was it, it felt for a long time like like they just didn't have control of the tie. Is that is that is that a fair mm. reading of the game? Yeah, I, look, I, I think I think history is written by the winners. I think if if we were having this chat at halftime in the first leg, I think you'd be slightly different, you know, <laughs> use of the word of control and maturity. Um, City rode a storm in that in that that first half, and yeah, they didn't uh, the first half of the first leg didn't panic, held on in there. But but you know, let's let's not sort of, uh, you know, p- pick the bones here. They, they, they were hanging on in the first leg. I mean, that on a different day, they could have been 3-0 down at halftime and then, you know, th- there's no coming back from that. Um, I just thought, I, I'll tell you the guy who summed it up for me was Zinchenko, that early penalty appeal in the second leg, which, again, I'm, I'm, I've always been a supporter of VAR and I, I appreciate it's driving people nuts at the moment, but this is the exact reason why you have VAR. And, and absolutely fine, you can be frustrated by a, a hair's breadth of an offside at some, decision, at some stage, but who cares? when frankly huge moments like this are rectified I mean in a parallel universe there's a penalty has been given to Paris Saint-Germain they score early they've all the momentum and City are now out of the Champions League you know and then so, so that to me was but but anyway the reason I'm talking about this is that you know Zinchenko's expression when when the ball came in I've never seen a man who who was appreciative of his place more you know he knew that a few months ago he'd have thought a big game like this I probably won't be in the team he knew this was his opportunity to shine. He was so serious. You know, he's protested the referee about no way, no way did I handle that. That came off my shoulder. Um, and he was just, he was a man who was living in the moment. You know, he was absolutely fully obsessed and absorbed by that game. I thought his performance was incredible, uh, both in attack and in defence. I thought, you know, that's the best game I've seen Zinchenko ever play. And it was all about focus, discipline, understanding his role, obeying his instructions, um, and just being in the moment, and and it summed it up for me. And and but you know, it was that about City. It was focus and it was maturity. Uh, and as you say, and then that that led ultimately 
to a control of the game. And, and by the second half of the second leg, I, I guess in a way it was very young Manchester City, and I hope you know you appreciate I'm saying that in a kind <laughs> way, but City, I, I, I well know back through the, the Paul Dickoff, uh, Gillingham, etc. There's usually a bit of a late drama, Aguero, Queen's Park Rangers, what have you. Normally when great things happen to City, it comes after an enormous scare. And, uh, and yeah, they, they absolutely rode that, that, that scare of the first half of the second leg and they never look back. Well, if you think there's a scare coming, Connor, there's a final to be played yet. So let's, uh, let's hold your horses yeah, on that Don't count your chickens, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Richard, you, you mentioned bodies on the line. Um, I mean, in, in one case with Diaz, well, in two cases with Diaz, it was face on the line. That's, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the level that he's, that he's bringing to City right now. Well, I mean, he seems to enjoy it as well, doesn't he? Like, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a sacrifice for him. It's not, um, it's not, it's not throwing his body on the line necessarily, like, because he has to. It's like he seems to want that to happen. He's, um, he's, he's an absolute titan at the back. Um, I mean, there was that interview that he gave to Jack Gorn uh, earlier in the season when he said that he takes pleasure from from making the other team feel powerless. And I think you see that in his game because when when somebody will, as you say, take the ball to the face to stop a goal in an important moment. Like that's, the next time PSG are attacking, that's going to be in the mind. Like we cannot get past this guy, no matter what we do, no matter what part of his body it takes, he's going to stop us. Um, it's just just imperious. Um, it's great to see that we've got players who will do that. It's, it wasn't just Diaz. It was a, a collective thing of, of, of players doing similar things. Diaz was certainly the most notable example, I think. But um, yeah, he, he clearly takes pleasure in defending and he mixes it with that that sort of i guess what we'd call a sort of old school robust style of defending um that is certainly i think wins you supporters very easily in this country um but he also mixes it with that what has become the so the accepted way of modern defending of he's good on the ball he's intelligent yeah. he can pass um and so to, to that end he's, he's basically got everything uh, he's uh, god i love him <laughs> the, 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 the thing is connor it's like like diaz is to city as van dyke was to liverpool isn't it that's it's been that sort of turnaround yeah that transformation i, I said that actually earlier in the season uh, i'd say back around december time i said that i said this guy has has made the impact uh, at City that that Van Dijk did at Liverpool, and clearly Klopp was getting things moving in the right direction. But it wasn't until Van Dijk came in that they really took the step on. I mean, you know, remember when Liverpool had Coutinho at one stage was was you know arguably the best player in the Premier League, and you felt that they were that they were moving in the right direction. But it's that stability. What what I what I really like about Ruben Diaz is he's he, to me he's he's almost robotic. He's he's like that uh, Ivan Drago character in Rocky Four. When he's really happy, you don't. He doesn't really go on about it too much. When he's really upset, he's you know you know he, he, he would be a good poker player, I would imagine. You, difficult to read his face. <laughs> he's just in the moment. He's he's playing the game, but he he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't waste any energy on the emotional um, you know gesticulations and screaming at referees or any none of that. That that would be a waste of energy. I am being solid i know my job i'm concentrating on the task at hand and he's he's been the difference you know and I, and I don't think it's a massive exaggeration to say you put him into to previous iterations of the city team and 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 he really would have improved them you know and i i think vincent company will always be a very high mark of that 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 leader at the back thing but um boy this guy's got the got the potential to fill that role in the future does he have a shout for player of the year do you think connor 
I think it's got a shout. It's very rare that that the um, that defenders get it, isn't it? You know, I, I mean, famously as an Irishman, we always remember this. You know, Paul McGrath was named Player of the Year once in the nineties at, at Aston Villa. Um, it, it's usually the more attacking players, but I guess this has been a season where there hasn't been, um, you know, particularly outstanding strikers. You know, I, I mean, I know in the past Vardy was sort of you know ran away with the. Golden Boost, you, you, you'd have had you know, seasons where Harry Kane was breaking records kind of thing. I, I, I don't think either of those have stood out this year. I don't think Mo Salah stood out this year. Um, so maybe he's got a chance, but it, it goes back to... Some, someone said this to me on air this week, actually, about Edison. You know, someone said... It was, I was chatting with Michael Brown, and he, he, he brought up a conversation he'd had with David James, and David James, sort of being part of the goalkeeping union, was saying, well, hang on, why, why isn't Edison a shout for player of the year? He's, he hasn't put a foot wrong. But it's just he hasn't been asked enough of, and he hasn't been challenged enough, and and I think that's kind of what Ruben Diaz will, will, will suffer from, is that as brilliant as he's been, he's made it all look um, normal and natural. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't make it feel uh, in any one instance that this is some incredible feat he's pulled off. It's just, no, business is normal. This is what I do. I stop the opponents from scoring goals. And um, for that unflashiness, I, I, I'm not sure he would convince people ahead of the more you know, elaborate players such as De Bruyne or what have you going forward. I think it's an interesting shout. And I think for a guy who's come into the Premier League to, to even be in that conversation shows how well he's, he's, he's been. But I, I, I still think I'd be surprised if he would be named Player of the Year. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. Statcity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk Richard, when you look at, at City's team and, and potential players of the year, earlier in the season we'd have said Diaz and we'd have said uh, Gundogan especially. Um, does Riyad Mahrez have a shout? Three of the four goals against PSG were Mahrez goals. You know, the, the fact that he's having such an influence on this side from a position where a lot of fans didn't really care if he was brought in or not. A lot of fans didn't really want to see him in the side even six months ago. And now he's one of the first names on the team sheet. Yeah, and, and on that basis, he, he has to have a shout at Player of the Year. I mean, the difficulty with having a conversation about Player of the Year at City is there's three or four players maybe more but there's three or four players that could legitimately win it and you could say they deserve it so um, Mares is very very much one of those players and what aids him in that conversation is exactly what you've just said it's a um, it is that he's come from a position where he wasn't the star man he wasn't um, the first name that you thought of he was definitely uh, for a while sort of behind Sterling Silver Foden, De Bruyne, that again, that sort of just the extreme attacking riches that City have got. Um, I, I think at times maybe you would have thought that Mares was one to play for rotation purposes rather than in the big, big games. And that was, you know, there's no point being revisionist about this to a point that was really, really fair because that was representative of what, of what he'd done at City. But what has been key, I think, is his talent has always been there. Like, you'd have to be very anti-Mares, and, and I think quite blinkered, to have ever denied his his individual quality. Um, he's got 
as good a first touch as you will ever see. I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd the the balls that he can control and stick to his foot. Um, his technical ability, his his, his feet. I mean, he's he's just fantastic. Um, but there's been a lot of times when in his city career where he's looked a bit out of step with the rest of the team. Now he's got this run of games and he's starting to get the confidence from having big moments consistently in big games. Um, I don't I don't know why you would take him out for anything other than rotation. Um, he's certainly, at the moment, obviously form form changes, but at the moment he's certainly above Sterling, um, which is a big thing to say because Sterling is, I think, the most selected player by in Guardiola's time at City. He's a mainstay of this team um, and... Uh, there's no reason that you would sort of take Mara's out to make way for him at the moment. He's um he's linking up well with players. He's taking individual responsibility, and you back him every time he's got the ball at his feet. Now he's 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 adding that individual quality to a, a real sort of um really aiding the the team game and team element now, and he, he slots right in rather than just being something different, which is what I think he was before. I think the point you've just said there about, you know, at different stages in the season, um, you know, you, you absolutely at one stage, everyone's saying, oh, Gundogan's going to be player of the year. I remember he was City's top scorer at the time. Um, at certain stages, you'd have said De Bruyne is the best player in the league. Now you've got Mahrez. I think I think that's been the key for City. And I think, you know, in the past, well, you know, let's say there was one year, Eric Cantona almost single-handedly won the league for Manchester United. There was, you know, there's been no dispute that Van Dijk was the standout player for, for Liverpool. I think it's, it's, it's City's strength that... Uh, Different players have hit peaks at different times, um, but it means then there's never been a lull. There's never been a time, there's never been a month this season where a City player hasn't been, you know, if not the best in the top two players in, in the entire division. And, and what a strength that is for Guardiola. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting as well. When Mahrez's second goal went in, uh, Connor, I uh, the Wi-Fi. I'm, in, I'm I'm away this week. Uh, I've got no phone signal, no uh, 3G or 4G signal, and the Wi-Fi in the resort went down for for almost 12 hours. So the second goal went in, and I had no idea how the game finished because I just couldn't couldn't find out. Um, Brilliant. Uh, and you were telling me you were you were outside watching it in the in the hail. <laughs> Yeah, I was I, I was I was working on Tuesday, and I, I met up with a, a friend of mine, and we went to uh, to a beer garden. It was all military style precision planning, uh, where we had we'd been on, and we'd said this is the seat we wanted, and the reason we wanted the seat is because it had a view of a television. Obviously, there's loads of beer gardens around. There's not many pubs have got TVs outside, um, so this was this was military precision. Of course, we all said oh, this is perfect. Got there early, drinking a pint, watching the match, and then suddenly the bloody hailstone starts coming down. You think, oh my God, it's May and we're sitting watching football in hailstones. But it was, uh, ah, having having not watched a football match in a pub for over 12 months, I, I didn't really care. It was good fun. Yeah, Richard, you're the only one who had a, a relatively normal experience of this game, I think. Yeah. And uh, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> um, yeah, although I guess that that does de- deny me having a story about it, like you do. Yeah. Well, you say you say normal though. I mean, you're you're sitting there on your own. It's uh, it's completely different to what normal should be, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, normal would be being in the stadium. So yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, uh, we can't move on without touching on uh, the Palace game uh, at the previous weekend. Although I I do understand it's you know it's barely registered on anybody's thoughts. Um, Richard, when you look at, at the rotated side, obviously it was a rotated side ahead of the PSG game. Um, we were talking about Riyad Mahrez. What's happened to Sterling recently? Oh well, it's um, 
I think it's really difficult to put your finger on. I, mean, I think the, the thing that I always come back to with Sterling, and, and you know, David, I mean, you know as well as anybody from years together on this podcast that even at his worst times, I've been a, a big, big advocate of Sterling's quality um, and sort of very, very slow to criticise him. But I think one thing that, like, even I can't deny through any of that is that he is a confidence player. Um, and it's it's been the case for a long time that he's been in really good form and really, really confident. He's had, at his worst moments, he has clearly retained the confidence of his manager. And I think as long as you retain the confidence of a coach that is one of, if you know, I mean, you can make an argument that the, but one of the greatest coaches of all time, then that's going to be good for your confidence, whoever you are. But now he's suddenly hit this phase where I guess it, it sort of started quite slowly. As recently, I suppose, as, as this year, he's put in big, big performances. Remember how good he was at Anfield? Um, he was he was world-class that day. He absolutely tormented Liverpool in a, in a big, big win for City. Um, and he, I think he, he scored in that game. Um, scored a header, yeah. Yes, he did. Um, and I think other than part of the cup final against Tottenham, and I gather uh, some good performances for England that I'll confess to, to not having had a chance to watch. I think that's the last good game I, I really saw him play, like a, a, a full good game. And I think he just increasingly looks like somebody who is not confident making a decision in the final third. And that sort of takes me back to sort of 20, 21-year-old Sterling. And it was understandable then because he was a kid and he was overly criticised for it, in my opinion. But now... He's got like this wealth of experience of being really, really good in the box and, and in the final third. Um, and and I, I don't know what sparked the dip in form other than that just sometimes happens to players because consistency is a really hard thing to achieve and he's achieved it for a long time. But now I think it's just like with every passing game almost, he looks a little bit less confident. And I, I do have confidence that he'll turn it round, but I, I really hope it's sooner rather than later because... He, he does just look out of touch. I mean, it's like literally instances of, of him being through against sort of last defender and, and tripping over himself. Like it, it, it's at that level at the moment. So um, as to what's happened or why it's happened, I don't know. But I think the reason it's perpetuating is because I just don't think the confidence is there now. Yeah, there's uh, there is another player there though, uh, Connor, who uh, did shine at uh, at Palace in in Sergio Aguero. Um, mm. Are City making a mistake letting him go? Do you think? Oh, do you know what? I've I've probably changed opinion on this a few times, but you know where I currently lie is I think they're doing the right thing. Um, I think it's best for him and for City. And I think, you know, for him to bow out uh, a league winner, um, you know, hopefully Champions League winner, that would be that would be the perfect, you know, farewell to to a guy who's been a great servant for the team. And it would still leave him with, you know, a, a a little window there to maybe go to Barcelona or somewhere and have two more years and you know still have a, another little chapter in his career I think if he does stay at City if he did stay at City I don't think he would be a regular starter I think he would spend the the next season or two on the bench and you know he's he, he's too old in his career now to be doing that um I think he needs to play and particularly because and the unfortunately with injuries you know the time that he has missed over the last 12 months so it's almost like you know he's a he's a racehorse who's been kept in the stable for a year your question is do you want to keep him in the stable for another year or do you want to let him out in the field and let him run around i think you want to let him out and run around um if he can go somewhere else and play week in week out 
and if City can look back and say thanks for the memories, and, and look, and you know, let's not fool ourselves that he he obviously gets paid an enormous amount of money. If if City use that money towards the purchase of his his replacement, um, that sort of makes sense for everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't want to make anybody feel old right now, uh, but there are adults alive. And Richard, I'm looking in your direction here as well because I know this is going to affect you more than more than Connor. Uh, but there are adults alive who are City fans that don't know what it's like to be relegated. That's because this Friday marks 20 years to the day since the club last dropped down a level. It happened in the penultimate game of the 2000-2001 season, where defeat at Ipswich left City unable to escape the bottom three of the Premier League. Down the years, we've spoken to several of the people involved in that team on the podcast, and. I've been taking a look at what happened. When August in the year 2000 came around, there was optimism around Main Road once again. After back-to-back promotions, City were back in the Premier League and fans were happy. I brought in George Weir, brought in Paolo Wanchop, brought in Steve Howie, who none of whom were particularly expensive buys, but we're all experienced at that level. That's Joe Royal, who was manager for City's promotions in 1999 and 2000. He says the experience was vital, having made only a few changes to the squad from their time in the third tier just two seasons earlier. The club was probably underfunded still, or saddled with debt to um, to go into the Premiership, but we did bring players in. It's a hard one, you know, when you're promoted, because you've got a group of players, particularly after two promotions who've got you there, who are high on spirit, not short on ability. So we, we had this group of players who... All love the club, uh, love playing for the club. We needed players of proven ability at that club. I'd asked Royal if he felt that second promotion came too soon, but he didn't think so. Goalkeeper Nicky Weaver remembers that summer as well, but felt like the inexperience was too big a gap to bridge. We signed Paolo Wanchop, Alfie Arland, Steve Howie, uh, George Weir. So it was sort of a few new lads and then all the lads who had been there through it all sort of thing. and. We weren't ready to go in, looking back now. One of the new faces, Steve Howie, explains what it was like joining City at that time. Well, it wasn't it wasn't easy at all. I remember that first game away, we got we got battered off Charlton. And it was always difficult. Um, any team coming up in the Premier League, uh, I mean, I think it gets harder and harder, unless you spend a fair bit of money. It's going to find it difficult, and we did. The season started off badly with a 4-0 battering at Charlton. It was an ominous sign, as Charlton had been promoted with City the previous year. But things did pick up, and with 10 games gone, City had 14 points. We started off okay. I think we, we lost at Charlton, and then I think we beat Sunderland. Paolo's going at I think. I think we won 4-2. And we, did, we was doing okay up until then. I remember it might have been round about the derby time. It might have been October, November, when we lost to Man United. Then we took a battering at Arsenal. And I think we went a six-game losing streak. Something like that. that's what really... And then once you get in, once you get down there in the Premier League, it's the winter months are tough. Nobody said it was easy. City beat Everton 5-0 at Main Road on the 9th of December. They then didn't win again until the end of February. There was a month when everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for us. Danny Teato scored a goal at Middlesbrough, I think it was, when he ran from the halfway line went past player after player and smashed the ball into the corner of the net and it was disallowed for Andrzej Kanchelski standing offside on the other side of the pitch and, and then we had a goal disallowed, I think it was against Tottenham 
for no reason at all and uh, and they went to the other end and scored in the last minutes and that's when you start thinking you know maybe Lady Luck's decided you know that this ain't going to be for us this year. And there were some extraordinary moments of bad luck. Over the Christmas period, City took another battering from Charlton, with the fourth goal looping over Nicky Weaver after Richard Dunn's clearance was blocked on the halfway line. That was Darren Huckabee's debut. I just remember Dunny scoring literally from near enough his own half, kicking it against somebody then going in the goal. That's all I can remember from that game. It was like a ridiculous goal where he deflected a clearance it went in from about 40 yards. Relegation was put off as long as possible as a three-game unbeaten run, only the second time that had happened all season, saw City beat Leicester and West Ham. In the middle of those two wins was a draw at Old Trafford, where Steve Howie scored City's equaliser. To be quite honest, they battered us, and uh, we should have been out of sight, but as it was, I'd, we managed to nick a goal um, and, and get a 1-1 draw. Because otherwise that would have sent us down. Um, I mean, as it was, the week later we played on the Monday and we, we got beat off Ipswich after, after leading and we went down, which was difficult, but I don't think it would have been as difficult if it was United that sent us down, so thankfully they didn't do it. City actually beat West Ham the next week, 1-0 at Main Road, but then came that match at Ipswich. We sort of like just whimpered out at the end a little bit. We never really, once we got into the bottom three, we never really sort of, we started off and just gradually come down and once... You know, we've seen it a million times. Once you get in there, it's difficult. And we ended up going down, I think, away at Ipswich. That game at Portman Road was on the 7th of May 2001. City had to win to keep their survival hopes alive. Sean Gota gave them the lead in the 75th minute, but then goals from Matt Holland and Martin Royser sent City down. It wasn't the performance in that game that caused the relegation. City hadn't been up to the job all season. We started off okay, but all around we didn't. We didn't quite hack it, you know, whether whether we should have spent more, whether we should have spent different, doesn't really matter, but bottom line was we didn't do it. That saw Joe Royal sacked, and Weaver was sad to see him go. When you think of what he'd done, for him to get sacked, and it, I felt, so, looking back, you know, I felt really sorry for Joe, because it, it was, for me personally, he's like the favourite manager I've ever played with, uh, I, you know, probably possibly my best spell under it, or certainly most memorable. Royal says he found it tough away from the pitch too. Personally, um, my wife was ill, she had cancer. My father also had uh, emphysema and cancer. And it was a hard time, there's no doubt it was a hard time. Uh, Dennis Stewart said in his book that um, uh, I'd changed and lost my humour. He might be right, you know, it certainly was a hard time. David Bernstein was the chairman at City at that time, having taken over from Francis Lee ahead of the relegation in 1998. He'd overseen the two promotions back to the top flight and was disappointed with how that season had ended in 2001. To go from the, from two two levels down up to the Premier League, and the Premier League, of course, you know, is, is such a strong league, Maybe, maybe it was too soon, but you know, you can't, I mean, you can't choose these things and yeah, we were thankful enough that we did it. Um, I was disappointed um, with our performance that season. I thought we could have done better and, um, you know, in the end, uh, the end of the season, Joe, Joe Wall went, which is a great shame in many ways because he'd done a great job over those previous two years. He, he really had and he and I had a great relationship. Since returning to the Premier League under Kevin Keegan in 2002, City have been ever-present. The fans have been lucky that even the threat of relegation has been rare, with only really 2004 and 2007 looking like any sort of trouble. With the way things are going for City these days, it's difficult to see when supporters will ever need to worry about going down again. Now I gotta get to
Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast and carry on doing so. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was a look back at the last city side to be relegated. Richard, um, am I right in thinking that that Ipswich game was uh, the first time you cried over football? Have you told me that? I have told you that, and it remains the only time I've cried over football uh, thus far. Um, I was 11, 11 or 12. I think I was, yeah, 11 or 12. Um, and after the, the Ipswich game had finished, um, which City had been leading in, so there was like a, there was a, a glimmer of light there and the possibility of an escape um, for it to suddenly turn and uh, and for City to lose and be down. It was the first time, not that I'd seen it, because obviously City had been relegated before that, but it was my first time of really understanding what that meant to like the full impact of it. And it was it was certainly my first time as a season ticket holder. I'd, I'd only seen two promotions at that point as a season ticket holder. Um, and yeah, I remember the game ending and I, I think I watched a bit of the sort of post-match stuff and then I went to go to bed and I got to the top of the stairs and just burst into tears. I was, it was awful. It's, uh, it's, it's not a good feeling at all. So, yeah, it's, uh, it will always stay with me, those, uh, those really, really bad moments. Those formative years, aren't they? That's the thing. The City fans these days don't know the ball, and that's the problem. Uh, Connor, I mean, how, how, how weird is it that, that City have made the Champions League final this week in contrast to what happened 20 years ago? It's, like, it's one of those nice football coincidences, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think I... That, remind me of the year, so that was, what, 2001? 2001. So, I mean, that was when, you know, Fergie was in his pomp at Old Trafford. United won the treble in 99. Um, I, I do. I mean, I suppose I'm interested in your guys' view on this. I, I, I do think that you know there, there is still to this day a hangover of resentment uh, from City fans, where you know things like the booing of the Champions League anthem. It was kind of felt. Is it fair to say that that was the kind of Man United song? That's the song we hear being played at Old Trafford. Uh, City are, are, are a different you know world to that. Um, and that and that now that City have come to that top table, have overtaken Manchester United, the City are the ones listening to the Champions League anthem. Um, it is funny and it kind of sticks. And um, yeah, look, it, it, I, I think you know there's been an awful lot said in recent weeks of the European Super League and whatnot, and and I guess the pairing of Paris Saint Germain and City, and they've they've obviously both got income from similar sources in terms of the the, the financial resources available to the club. Um, but I, I think probably my experience of, of living in Manchester and going to University of Manchester that, you know, I do appreciate that for all the the wealth that the club has acquired in the meantime, I mean, it is still the same club. I think they've, they've worked really well at doing that. I think it's one of the things the owners have done so well is that they've they've kept up the city and the community type stuff. Um, I know that they're great, you know, uh, supporters of charities and children's charities and stuff like that around the East Manchester area. And, 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 you know, the, I like when you go to the Etihad, you still see the City fans in those old shirts from, from that time, you know, and it's not just, oh yeah, we're wearing the shirt that reminds us of the, the, the victory season or whatever. You will see you will see fans wearing shirts that were worn in, in the third tier or the, that were worn in, in relegation seasons. And I think it's it's that link to the past and remembrance of it that is important. And, and you know, it's it's why City have, have managed to, to maybe pull off the whole you know, wealthy ownership thing a lot better than 
than the reaction that the Glazers are getting at Manchester United, where there's a resentment of, uh, you know, the, the, the new owners involved that, that, that just isn't the case at City. Um, I, I just think that what, what they've done is they've cherished those old days, bad as they were at times, as being part of the fibre of the club. They've not been forgotten. They've actually been celebrated. And, and that's why it means more now. And I think, you know, for, for another club to get to a Champions League final might be great or whatever. But for City, it means so, so much because of because of where you've got it. As you said, yeah, lovely synergy would have been the anniversary of, of, of much darker days. <laughs> um, Richard, do you remember who the dead rubber was at the end of that season? I do. I remember applauding Gianfranco Zola off the pitch at Main Road. It was Chelsea. It was Chelsea, um, which means it's a nice seamless link into who City playing next. <laughs> <laughs> Very I good. Couldn't Very couldn't good. have written it better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's uh, just before we do talk about this weekend's game. You say uh, that that Chelsea side applauding Gianfranco Zola off the pitch. What what were you going to say then? Oh yeah, just no. That that's sort of my main takeaway from the game. And the, uh, the there was a pitch invasion that cut the game short by a few seconds. The referee hadn't actually blown his whistle and the fans were on the pitch Good. I remember uh, walking off the pitch and, and back out down the tunnel um, with a, a big big piece of the main road turf balanced on my head and that lived in, the, <laughs> that li- lived in our back garden for, for quite some time lovely stuff uh, well it's I mean it's a different situation with the Chelsea game this time because it's one win uh, to win the title um, there is there is the temptation that that should be the motivating factor for City to go all out. But as I was talking to Sam Lee on uh, on the Why Always Us podcast this week, Richard, he, he was saying basically, don't give Chelsea any clues as to how you're going to play in the Champions League final. So just mix it up. It doesn't matter if you lose. Where do you stand on it all? I think no matter what happens between now and the Champions League final, um, nobody will be resting on any laurels as to what on earth Pep is going to do. Uh, he has so far resisted the urge to go mad in any of the Champions League <laughs> games. Maybe he's saving it for this one to be his magnum opus, like Edison up front, Walker back in net, that kind of thing. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I think you, you play the game in front of you, don't you? Um, I think there's there's a point to that. But ultimately, Chelsea know how City approach football games. Um, they know the players that we've got at hand they know reasonably who we're going to pick from so for example you could argue that any of Torres Sterling or Jesus could feasibly start that game but they're not all three going to start together so even within that like Chelsea will have reams and reams especially Thomas Tuchel I mean they will have reams of uh, and files on City and they'll be scouted as much as any team can be scouted I'm sure um, that I, I don't really think necessarily the experience of playing them in this game in where a win isn't you know obviously we, we want the win for the title but we it's not the same peril um, I don't think that that will give them an indicator of the final because what it doesn't tell you is how City react if the back's against the wall or Chelsea won't learn necessarily how City react in a Champions League final if they're 4-0 up. Like if that happens in this game, I don't I don't see that as a precursor uh, as, as a precursor to the final. So yeah. I, I don't, um, whilst I see the point, I, I probably, it's a, a rare occasion of me not really agreeing with Sam on that one. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I get the impression, Connor, that this could be uh, the, the time when the phrase dress rehearsal is used more than any other <laughs> in, the, in the space of like three or four days, can't it? Um, yeah, 
I think it'll be a rope a dope. I, I I don't think we'll see fireworks, and and look, that's not to say you know someone might score a bicycle kick or something, but I think I think this will you know nobody's going to want to get injured. It's going to be that sort of a game. Um, I, I I think there's probably more riding on it for Chelsea, being that you know they're still not uh, assured of their place in the top four. They've got a three point advantage in West Ham at the moment. Um, but I, I still think Chelsea will think, look, win the Champions League final, then you're in the Champions League next season anyway. Um, I, I, I think any player who's got any sort of a knock or a doubt would be rested. You know, I'd be surprised if Pep starts to broil it. Like, why risk him with his history of injuries in a game like this against your opponent in the, in, in the final to come? Um, I, I, but at the same time, Pep won't put out a, a B team. He'll want to win. He'll want to create that winning mentality, keep, sorry, you know, continue the winning mentality. And, you know, we spoke about Zinchenko earlier on the show and about how he's a guy who hasn't been assured of his place but yet gets in ahead of Cancelo. And actually, Cancelo's another one, you know, we talk about player of the year. At one stage, everyone was saying Cancelo had reinvented the whole idea of a fullback and, you know, he was, he was looking to be City's best player. Not only was he defending well, he was scoring goals. Um, but, you know, he's, he's slipped down the favour. And I think, I think Pep will want to keep that hunger. He wants everyone feeling like Sterling and Cancelo do right now. Wow, how is this happening? How am I not first choice for the big games? That's what he wants everyone to feel, or the risk that, that could happen to them, because that hunger is, is what's so important going into something like a Champions League final. What he won't want is to sit in the hours, oh yeah, I'm resting you because you're brilliant. Um, I'm going to let someone else play in this league match now that doesn't matter as much. Um, I, I can't see that. I think he will want to keep the hunger going. Yeah, Connor, you've seen you'll have seen more of Chelsea uh, this season than, than me and Richard. What what's uh, Tuchel doing differently? Why is why have they been so much better in, in recent weeks? Yeah, I, I think I think look, Frank Lampard's a very popular guy. Um, he was an experienced manager and not an experienced manager at that level of dealing with the the big superstars. And you know, and I'm saying all that as a guy who was a big superstar player himself not so long ago. So it's not that he was totally naive or anything, but he just didn't have experience of of maybe how to how to react to, to, to certain things. I think Tuchel has come in much more sort of streetwise to, to, to this scenario. I mean, this is a guy who's, who's, who's brought teams to big finals before. Um, and and I, I think just that change of atmosphere has, has been a huge difference. I think Abramovich gets criticised for being so trigger-happy with, with moving on between managers, but you can't doubt his record. I mean, it absolutely works for him. You know, when he makes changes, almost always the change ends up being uh, another successful uh, tenure for some manager. So he tries to freshen it up all the time. And I think that's exactly what Tuchel has done. He's come in and he's just freshened up the ideas. I think they, they originally under Lampard were sort of riding a storm of transfer ban and whatnot. And players like Tammy Abraham were, were playing an awful lot in the team. And to be fair to Abraham, he did he did very well. But it's different now. Now it's it's spending enormous amounts of money on Kai Havertz, who you know last summer was amongst the most coveted players in Europe. If it wasn't for the shambolic finances of Real Madrid and Barcelona, they absolutely would have wanted a player like Havertz. So when you're bringing in these prized assets, um, they have to be managed absolutely perfectly. And I, I think Tuchel's done a, done a very good job of doing that. So yeah, it's a mentality thing as much as anything else. But it's also these players settling in. You know, for 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 the likes of Werner and Havertz, they haven't been at Chelsea very long. Uh, it has taken them a while to get into the groove, but but they've a lovely, you know, Chelsea have a lovely balance between the solid, experienced players, and I'm thinking N'Golo Kante here, and then the youthful exuberance of the Mason Mounts. You know, when, when they do click, they're a very good team to watch. Yeah, they uh, they clicked in the uh, the FA Cup semi-final, didn't they, Richard? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately they did, and, uh, and City absolutely didn't. So, um, <laughs> hoping for no repeats of that in either of our uh, either of our upcoming games against them. And any lessons to be learned from that, though, or is it simply because City rotated the side so much that it was that it was more disjointed from City? Do you think? 
Well, I think that is the main lesson, yeah, is that there's, um, and it's it's something that I think we already know really, is that no matter how good you are and no matter how deep you might think your squad is or how much quality you've got in every position, you can, there's still like a, a limit to how many changes you can make at any one time and expect to be sort of, I think almost anything more than functional. You like one for one, you can take out Bernardo Silva and put Mares in, or well, Sterling, as it might be at the moment. And the team's not going to suffer too much, even if that one replacement has a bad day because the rest of the quality around them is so good and everybody else is still sort of in sync. But if you do that with three, four, five players, it just, I think it, it stops working because you're putting them into a situation where they don't usually play together in a match. Um, and yeah, it's just not the same thing. So I, th I think that's the main lesson. It was a lesson that, to be honest, we should have learned from Leeds the week before that semi-final when we did the same thing. And it was, um, not too fine a point on it, but it was rubbish there too. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's the main thing. I don't think we'll see that level of rotation in the league game. Um, we certainly won't see it in the Champions League game. Um can you well, imagine? <laughs> I, I, well, the sad thing is I can't. <laughs> but I, I, it won't happen. But yeah, um, yeah that, that's the main thing. That Yes, we have to rotate in, in upcoming games, but uh, there's, there's still a limit to it because we need to keep up the habit of winning and we need to keep players fit and ready for the, for the Champions League final. So um, rotation within reason. Yeah. Uh, well, Sam Roscoe was spot on with his prediction against Palace, but there were no winners for the PSG match. It means we've now won £1,185 this season so far. The money is going to the Christie, a cancer treatment hospital in Manchester, and we're each getting a £10 correct score single with William Hill for our charity bet. Now, uh, no pressure on you two guys, but we are now about, uh, what is it, about £165 short of our best ever season on the charity bet. Uh, so uh, I, we really, really need you to get these right. Uh, so I'm going for a 2-0 uh, win at Chelsea. That's 7-1 to one and £70 if I'm right. Connor, what have you got for this one? Um, I think 2-1 um, and, and just, you know, harking back to, to what I said before about, about it being the, uh, the, the, the dress rehearsal and, and as much as uh, City will try and stay focused. I can I can see Chelsea getting one goal, but 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 equally I can see City winning the game. So I'm going to go for two one City. Two one City is uh, fifteen to two and seventy five pounds. If you're right, Richard, where are you going with this one? Uh, I also sort of have this nagging feeling that Chelsea are too good not to score. Um, but I'm going probably very optimistic given their defensive record. Uh, I'm going to go three one City. Well, 3-1 City would put us on the brink of uh, our best ever season because that's £160, 16-1 to 1, if you're right on that one. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on responsible gambling, have a look at begambleaware.org. Now, John Stones was sent off pretty close to half-time when City played Aston Villa a couple of weeks ago, and that got us thinking here at Blue Moon Podcast HQ. We don't have a Blue Moon Podcast HQ, genuinely. Um, but it got us thinking about a pair of the more bizarre City red cards. Sam Roscoe is taking a look back at a time when City had players dismissed during the half-time break. The red card for Joey Barton in City's amazing 4-3 comeback win at Spurs in 2004 wasn't any normal red card. I didn't think it was possible to send someone off. I, I, even to this day, I didn't say anything for, at the level for him to send me off. That was Barton speaking to the podcast a couple of seasons ago. 
In that game, he'd been booked for a challenge on Michael Brown in the 42nd minute. Worse, Christian Zieger then stepped up and planted the free kick into the top corner for 3-0. When I watch it back, it's, it's probably a foul, but he books me for it. Zieger sticks it in the top bin. So I'm fuming that, firstly, he's given the foul. It's 50-50, but I can see him giving it. But then the yellow card, because it's like the first tackle I've made. So I'm saying to him, how, how are you booking me? How are you giving me a yellow card for that? Obviously not in as polite a tone as that. The referee that day was Rob Stiles, and Barton thinks the official was looking for trouble after how the evening had started. I was warming up with Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler, and they, they were winding them up. Rob Stiles, they were, they were giving them a bit of jip. And I can always remember Rob looking round, and he didn't know who was saying it. And I was the only one who was starting. So the other Fowler was on the bench, and I don't know, what, I think Maher was on the bench. So in my head, I'm like, he's looked around there and gone, right, I'm going to give it to one of them. And obviously, I'm the only one who was on the pitch. Barton carried on his protests of his booking as the teams left the pitch, and Rob Styles showed him a second yellow. I'd gone into the dressing room at half-time, and uh, Gaffer's having a goal, like, and Keegan it was at the time. And I've just started taking my boots off and, like, launching them. Like, just look, like, obviously not, not happy at all. Take my top off and, like, shorts and all that, and he's going, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I said, been sent off. He said, what? I said, I've been sent off. So he's got no clue I've been sent off. He sends Derek Fazakli out to go and check, comes back in and says, yeah, he's been sent off. The second half was astonishing though. With 10 men, City came back from 3-0 down to win 4-3 and knock Spurs out of the cup. I remember sitting in the plays line. I'm sure I was with Jamie Redknapp. I'm sure I was talking to Jamie Redknapp. He'd, he'd been left out there squad. By the time I'd sat down, it's 3-1. I'm like, oh, all right, come on, mate, we get make it respectable, then it's like 3-2 and I'm like, I'm getting fined at 3-0, thinking that's two weeks wages at least, 3-1, I'm like, I'm still getting fined, 3-2, I'm like, might only be a week's wages here, might take the edge off Keegan's draft, 3-3, I'm like, might not even be a fineness, and then obviously 4-3, and I ne you never find me, it got lost in the pandemonium of the game. It wasn't long until there was another red card at half-time for City too. Again, it was away from home. Again, it was two yellow cards, and again, you may have guessed it, the referee was Rob Stiles. But this time, it was at Chelsea in the Premier League. City fan Trevor Slattery was there. I had come over from Cork for the weekend, and we were actually staying in the hotel at Stamford Bridge. It was, it was probably the best price we could get late in the day when we knew we'd secured the tickets. And the build-up to the game that I remember was just carnage in the squad, because we were, we were uh, full of injuries. So it was a very second string young team that played that day, so we didn't hold out much hope going into it. The controversy came just after the half hour. Didier Drogba had already scored when he made it 2-0, but City were adamant his second shouldn't have stood. The second goal was like, it, it was the most blatant handball you've ever seen in your life. Uh, a ball was scuffed across the middle and, and Drogba just took it down with his hand and, and buried it from six yards. So there was, there was a lot of um, anger, should we say, can, followed that and this then got booked in the melee after that. The half continued and City went in 2-0 down at the break. We were in the, the, the shed end as usual in the bottom say left hand corner as the TV screens cameras would have been looking and over on the far side by the corner flag this then just basically as the referee blew up for half time this then was controlling the ball so he picked it up and instead of handing it back to the referee he just obviously wanted to discuss why he hadn't given a free out for the, the blatant handball goal. Rob Stiles can then be seen making a ball gesture several times and asking Distan to hand him the ball. 
the city captain didn't. It didn't look to be anything aggressive. He just held the ball in his hand and was trying to discuss it with the referee. And obviously the referee, after about maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds, took umbrage to what he was saying and pulled out the second yellow card. And this then just turned in disbelief and, and, and the whole away end went bananas at it. Since that day in March 2006, City haven't had another player sent off during the interval. And Rob Styles retired from refereeing in 2009. I'm Joey Barton, this is the Blue Moon Podcast. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Sam Roscoe there. Now, uh, going to finish with Ask the Panel. Get your questions in for next week's show on Twitter, at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, one question this week, uh, rather simply, from Sam Donnelly on the emails. Should the Champions League final be moved to England so that more fans can go? Connor, what do you reckon? Uh, okay, controversial one here. And I know the popular thing is to say, oh, move it to, you know, play it at Tottenham Stadium. Um Two English teams, it should be in England, and I appreciate that's a view many people have. Um, I'm going to go against it. I, I understand the the logic um, of, first of all, you know, this has been a very strange year, and in terms of spectators going and fans, and look, regardless of where it's on, you're not going to have a scenario where uh, 40,000 City fans get to go to the game, you know, that it might have been if it had been on a Wembley in normal circumstances or whatnot. Um, so a compromise is going to have to be made anyway. And, you know, the example I will give is, you know, as an Irish person, I remember a few years back, uh, the Europa League final was held in Dublin. And it was a big deal. It ended up being, uh, it was one of the, was it Porto again? Was it all Portuguese uh, final? I think, well, I can't even remember now. But, but you know, I remember that was a kind of, it felt a good thing for the country. Not many top flights, uh, top class uh, football games happened in Ireland. And here was a chance to host a big final. And it felt prestigious. And again, you know, that the, the country could host travelling visitors, a bit of crack about town. Um, and it was all a very, very good thing. So, you know, I think in, in theory going forward, I, I don't think it should be, oh, let's wait every year till we see who's in the final and then pick a convenient location. I think, you know, holding the final, a bit like, you know, Tokyo holding the Olympics or whatnot, it's it, it's a prestigious thing and you build up for it for years and you trade off it for, for, for at least a, a couple of seasons that you know this final is coming and, and people can feel proud of their local facilities and whatnot. And then the other, the other point that I would just add into the mix is that I went to Baku two years ago now when it was Chelsea against Arsenal. This is back in a pre-pandemic world when it was obviously very inconvenient for Chelsea and Arsenal fans to travel. And funny enough, I remember being at the airport the next day and seeing all these uh, London-based supporters mixing in the airport and not getting on very well. And uh, you know, there was a, not a nice mood in that airport the next morning when you've got loads of hangover football fans heading back to the same city together with different views on how things have gone and knowing it's going to be such a long flight. But I remember being in Baku and meeting up with these guys who had traveled from India and they were diehard uh, Arsenal fans. They'd only ever been to uh, the Emirates a handful of times in their life because it was such an arduous journey to go across. But this was a game that was within uh, a much better touching distance for them to get to. And they were able to make their plans and they were hoping Arsenal would get to the final. And then they travelled to Baku and they went in. And, and I just think that's another aspect that, that has to be brought into it about, you know, it, it's all well and good. Um, you know, on these rare occasions when two teams from the same country come into it. But, you know, around the world, people 
you know, this could be a really big deal. You get tickets to a final, you're going to go, and then your team qualifies, and, and you, you've planned your trip about. It's almost like a mini holiday. And I just think that's an important thing to, to have in the future. And, you know, there will be times in the, in, when the world gets back to normal when, you know, hopefully City will be in a final in, in Lisbon or uh, Chelsea will be in a final in Munich. And that would be a wonderful experience for those fans to go and to feel different. You know, this isn't an FA Cup final. This isn't a League Cup final. This is a European final. We have to go abroad to, to take part in it. And I just think that's a special part of, of these games down through the years. And, and, and I can understand why that's got to be protected going forward. But I appreciate that is not a popular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, Richard, you've already said uh, that you're not going to apply for tickets when they come up. Um, uh, there's... There's no option for Wembley because uh, the 29th of May, the Champions League uh, final day, is the date of the Championship playoff uh, final. So there's Wembley's not available. Um, is, is there actually more opportunity for, for English fans to go to this game if it was moved to, to, to somewhere in the UK? Or would it, st- it would still be a reduced capacity? So what's the difference, really? Well, I think... Um, I, I... I will answer that, but I think there's a wider a wider context to it that um, that I, I would address because I think um, that narrows it down to just making it an issue of the supporters. And I'm of whilst I understand and agree with almost everything Connor said, and it's there's none of it that I would sort of um, even if I don't agree, there's none of it that I would say is like a um, is wrong in what Connor said. But I think the, the wider context is COVID, isn't it? And, and the, the pandemic and it's the safety of the game going ahead. I mean, that's, that's not to say it's unsafe to go ahead in Istanbul as such. But I think we are in a time where it's really important to minimise risk. And of course, the world has to uh, hopefully go back to normal at some point. And I'm not somebody who um, who doesn't want that to happen or want sort of <laughs> like lockdown extended un- unnecessarily or anything like that. I think it's really important to assess stuff at the time and make sure that, that things are right. So it was right to give the game to Istanbul. It would be right to say, because obviously they were meant to host it last year and it, it got rearranged from there. So it's right that they get the chance this year. And it would be right for it to remain Istanbul um, in in normal circumstances. I, I would never say because it's two clubs from the same country, the game should be moved to accommodate those supporters. That wouldn't be right at all. But I, I believe that there's a current uh, quite a high... COVID rate, I'm very open to correction on that because I wouldn't want to be misinforming, but I believe there's quite a high infection rate in Turkey at the moment, whilst I'm sure there will be precautions and things can be done to make it safe. We are finally at a point in this country where infection rates are reasonably low and where we are, we seem to be coming towards, um, we are over the worst of the pandemic, hopefully. And so, you know, the vaccine programme's going well and so on and so forth. Why, why would there not be? Well, I mean, what this all comes back to, it's not about a snap decision. Why would there not have been a contingency plan for the season that cons- uh, allowing for COVID if two teams from the same country have, are able to play the game in their country? But, but we, have, we have flown... Um, teams to other countries to play European competition all season. So it's been it's been going well so well so far. Why why take it off Istanbul? So again, I, I mean, it's not. 
I'm not fully like saying that it necessarily should be, but we haven't flown teams where two teams came from the same country and there were contingencies put in place for that. So at times when players would have had to isolate for two weeks on coming back, games were played in, um, forgive me, remind me, was it Budapest? where we played two legs against uh, Munch and Gladbach, there have been contingencies made for COVID. So I, I would give that as my answer, that yes, we've flown to other countries, but that is all part of contingency planning. And so that that's my issue with it. That's why I think um, there is a very strong case and I would side with having the game played in England. I don't... I. I, I if it, I mean, I can say it would make it easier for me to go. As, you know, part of the reason that I won't be going to Istanbul is because of my home circumstances. I have an eight-month-old son that I want to be around and, um, you know, sort of financial commitments are, are elsewhere at the moment. So if it was in this country, that would probably be a bit easier because I wouldn't be travelling in... Sorry, I wouldn't be factoring in travel and I could feasibly get back from anywhere in the country for the following day. Like, it's... Um, but that isn't why I'm saying it, like I, um, I I just think that that should be something that is open to consideration. Um, I, I would never normally say that for two teams from the same country, um, but I just think we're in a position where we can avoid, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen at the next announcement about which countries are red listed or, or orange listed, or forgive me if they're not the right terms. Like for all we know, Turkey might yet be red listed if cases spike and we might they can say fans can travel but that might change we don't know so i think you can i think you can mitigate those risks that's all um and i i would that would be better say that happens and you have eight thousand less people at the final then that isn't a good look for istanbul it isn't a good look for uefa to have the showpiece even more sparsely attended than it would be anyway um so i think there's commercial reasons as well for why it could be hosted um, hosted in Britain but um, you know that's not to say I'm right but it, yeah. it is something that I, I do believe it, uh, I think should be contingency planned for well uh, Wembley's not free uh, the Etihad's free that weekend I think I, I, don't, I can't think of any, uh, anything going on there that weekend but uh, yeah uh, it's, a, it's a topic we'll, uh, we'll probably be coming back to in uh, future shows but for now that's it for this week's Blue Moon podcast thank you very much for listening and thank you to my guests Richard Burns Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure. And Conor McNamara. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, guys. Enjoyed it. Please go and give the show a rating and a review in all the usual places, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you can. If you'd like some more, then the three of us are talking about City's Irish players on this week's Patreon show. You can sign up to any of the three tiers on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast, where you'll also get ad-free versions of the show as well. I'll be back next week to review the match with Chelsea, and I'll see you then. Was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.